you want to take out your sermon outline. It says the calling of the king on it. Have that to follow along. Sort of in summer mode now. So lots of good seats in the front section. Anybody? It's a hankering to... We are in Matthew chapter 9. Today we'll be at starting at verse 9, reading through verse 17. If you want to turn in your Bibles, you can read along in the outline, uh, scroll on your electronic device, uh, whatever, get to Matthew chapter 9. And then please listen carefully, this is the word of the Lord. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him and saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us again to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand the hard teaching that's in this passage. It's hard because we usually think we're righteous, but we're too easily revealed to be sinners. And it's hard because we're forced to admit we need you. So help us to consider what it really means to follow you. And by your spirit, open this gospel to us and help us to see Jesus as always, for this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Give me a moment to turn this on. Yeah. Hopefully I won't put you into a deep slumber this morning. Not usually my goal, but sometimes achieved. One of my uh, favorite trips of uh, our life was when Joanne and I got to go to Italy. And if you've ever been uh, to Italy, it's hard not to notice all the statues. Every plaza, piazza, square is filled with world-class statues sculpted by historic Renaissance artists. And they're just out there in the square, and they're like, uh, Donatello did that, or Botticelli did that. And you're like, it's like amazing. It's, pri it's priceless. It's worth millions. It's out there in the square, and there's pigeons on it. And 
But this is a story about one of those statues. See, centuries ago, a number of workmen were seen dragging this great marble block into the city of Florence in Italy. It had come from the famous marble quarries of Carrara, which is Carrara marble, supposed to be the best marble in the world. And it's intended to be made into a statue of an Old Testament prophet. But it contained imperfections. And it was for Donatello. But when he saw it, immediately refused it at once because of the imperfections. So they just left it there in the yard at the cathedral in Florence, and it just sat there, this useless block of marble. But one day, another sculptor uh, came by and saw this flawed block, but as he examined it, there rose in his mind something of immense beauty, and he resolved to sculpt it. And so for two years, the artist worked feverishly on this imperfect, flawed block of marble. And finally, on January 25th in 1504, the greatest artist of the day assembled to see what he had made of this rejected block. And among them were Botticelli, Leonardo da Vinci, Pietro Perugino, who was the teacher of Raphael. They were not turtles. But... As they unveiled, you know, they have the statue and unveil it, it's draped, and then they pull the drape off the statue. And as this veil drops to the floor, there was just this immediate chorus of praise. It was a masterpiece. And the succeeding centuries have confirmed that judgment, considered one of the greatest works of art the world has ever known. It is Michelangelo's David a block of imperfect, flawed, rejected marble. And the hands of one of the greatest artists of all time became one of the greatest works of art of all time. And that got me thinking. Because in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 2, it tells us, For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. At our best, we're imperfect blocks. We're filled with flaws. Sometimes we're hard as marble. And yet the greatest artist of all time, our Lord Jesus Christ, says that we are his workmanship. We are his creation. We are his and our text today in Matthew 9 gives us the story, the beginning of this transformation from a flawed life to a follower of Christ. Christ saw in the flawed life of Levi the tax collector, as he's called in Mark and Luke, this work of great craftsmanship that we now know of as Matthew, the writer of the gospel, the great evangelist, the apostle. He looked at this flawed block sitting by the side of the road, and he saw something great. And the Lord still sees men and women with an artist's eye today. He sees in us what no one else sees. But this passage really isn't about us. And it's not even really about Matthew. Hopefully it will become obvious what it's about, or who it's about. Now in this passage, Jesus says to us, My message is absolutely and utterly new. 
It's absolutely and utterly different. It's different than the religion of the Pharisees. It's different than the religion of the past. It's different. My whole approach is I don't like righteous people. I only like sinners. This whole passage tells us what a real Christian is. A real Christian is someone who's been called, someone who's a disciple, someone who's been made new. And that's what this passage is going to teach us. What does it mean to be a Christian, a real Christian, someone who's been called, someone who's a disciple, someone who's been made new? And I want to spend some time, I'm going to spend most of the time this morning on the first point, actually, because I want to look at more detail at what is a Christian. Because I believe a Christian is someone who's had the same experience as Matthew. So that's where we'll start, Matthew 9, beginning at verse 9. And the first thing we see is a Christian is called by someone. A Christian is called by someone, starting at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, let me say something maybe a little surprising uh, to some of you. You're not a Christian unless you have, like Matthew, experienced a call. You're not a Christian unless you're aware of having been called. Christianity is not something that you take up. It's something that takes you up. Let me say that again. Christianity is not something that you take up. It's something that takes you up. And that theme comes up often in Matthew. And I would say this is one of the main ways you can tell you're on the right path. You have a sense of being worked on. A Christian is someone who's called. Now, we have to be very careful with that. Because we have to be very careful not to assume that God calls everyone the same way or that God works on everyone the same way. I mean, if you read a little earlier, back in verse 1, which Dave Dorse unfolded for you uh, last week, it says Jesus was on a boat, crossed over the sea, came to his town, went into a home, and then we read in verse 2, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now you have to see something here on the surface. It looks like the way that Jesus dealt with the paralytic and the way Jesus deals with Matthew are totally different. Paralytic had a bunch of friends. We're told, as Dave told you last week, they're trying to get into the house where Jesus was. And they couldn't get in. There was too many people. So they went up on the roof and tore up the roof of the house. wonder what the owner of the house thought. In Jesus' name, they tore up the roof of the house. Lowered him down. So it looks like here's somebody who's being very active, doing everything possible to get to Jesus. And the way Jesus meets Matthew seems totally different. Here's Matthew. He's at work. He's uh, sitting there at the tax booth. Just imagine yourself. You're at your desk. People are coming up to you. They're paying you something. You're writing in your ledger book. Okay, Mr. So-and-so, Miss So-and-so has given this amount. You're crossing names off the ledger. And suddenly somebody walks up and says, follow me. Matthew's not after this. Matthew's not looking for this. Matthew's not praying for this. In comes Jesus. So it's easy to say it looks like Jesus operates a completely different way. So we need to be very careful about trying to standardize the Christian experience. 
We shouldn't do that. It's real easy to think because I came to Christ this way, that's how everybody should do it. I came to Christ in a crisis, so if somebody didn't come in a crisis, you know, you wonder. If you came because you did a lot of study and you, you came to Christianity through an intellectual experience, you know, you might mistrust somebody who came through an emotional experience. Some people feel you have to walk forward in a service when a preacher makes an invitation. That's the only real way to do it. It's always dangerous to try to standardize from these passages. But yet there is something that is common here. And, and what's common here is that when you're called, you sense Jesus is in charge. You sense Jesus is in charge. The first characteristics to be called, you're not actually the one who's in charge of this spiritual adventure. You sense there's an outside power coming in who's in charge. Now you can say, well, it's easy to see in the story of Matthew. <clears throat> Jesus coming in, calling Matthew right in the middle of the workday. That's not how it worked for the paralytic. Yeah, it was. Just look. See, the paralytic was not after the Jesus he found. The paralytic wanted a magician. He wanted Jesus the healer. He wanted Jesus to heal him. And so he comes on down. There he is. He's on the, the mat, and he's on the floor now. He's come down through the roof. He's looking up at Jesus, and what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute. That's not what I'm here for. See, Jesus is in charge. Paralytic may think he's in charge, but he's not. Jesus is. Paralytic thinks he's the one seeking Jesus, but Paul tells us, in Romans 3, that no one seeks God. Anyone who's ever taken any kind of active spiritual search, if you ever find the real God, you always and inevitably look back and realize you weren't actually trying to find the real God. You had another God in mind. You had a God who's going to do this and this and this and this and this for you. And God can use that kind of search to find you. But when he finds you, he brings you up short. And to be called is an experience that there is this outside power that's now at work in your life. And if you don't sense that, if you don't sense somebody's after you, if you don't sense something's going on inside, and if you don't sense that God's at work, even if you don't understand it, well then, it's not real Christianity. I'm always amazed, once someone learns something of the Christian faith, it gets really hard to go back. You know, especially if they're a thoughtful person. I remember talking to someone a few years ago who didn't want to be a Christian. Knew a lot about it. He didn't want to be a Christian. There were lifestyle issues that he wanted to pursue. You can just read between the lines. And uh, Christianity and the ethical standards of Christianity aren't going to let him choose the particular lifestyle issues that he wants. They recognized the truth, but he didn't want it. Because you realize, this demands change, this demands transformation, I don't want to change. So he gets mad Christianity, gets mad at Christians, gets mad at the church, because he knows. And I think, there's a man being called. God is at work. You know, to some degree, if somebody's mad at Christianity, mad at the church, and angry, feels like God's after him, I got a lot more hope for them. And then for uh, a lot of people, they're like, you know, I've always been a Christian. I've always gone to church. Just very comfortable. 
you know, religion's a private thing. Don't get too excited. I worry about them. I have a friend who pastors in the deep south, and he says, I got to get people unsaved before I can get them saved. <laughs> I understand. You know, I don't care how many Sunday school pins that person has. That guy's not called. The person who's struggling, who's challenged, that person's called. There's a sense of this outside force intruding into your life. And if you're a Christian, you sense there's something different going on here. And that's Jesus, and he's in charge. That's the first way you can tell you're called. Second way you can tell you're called is you realize you're confronted with a person, not an idea. You know, Jesus comes and he says, follow me. He doesn't say follow that or follow these. He says, follow me. You know, the real Jesus is always picking a fight and talking about himself. That's true. He's always saying, Matthew 22, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said, the son of David. He's amazing. There is this radical self-centeredness about Jesus. I mean, look at all the things that he said. Before Abraham was, I am. I and my father are one. No one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. He said, you must love me and hate your father and mother. It's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Huh? And what he's saying is the devotion you should have for me should be so much greater than the devotion you would have for anybody else, including your father and mother, so much so that your devotion to your father and mother should look like hate compared to your devotion to me. It's radically self-centered. And that's not bad. What does that mean? Well, one way you know you're called is you're confronted with this radical self-centeredness. You're confronted with this idea that it's not about me. It is all about Jesus. I want to be completely frank with you. People are investigating Christianity. There is one set of questions that I have very little patience for. I'm not a very good role model. I don't, I, I don't handle these questions very well. And it's always when it goes something like this. You know, I'm real interested in Christ and Christianity and the church, but what's the Christian view of this? What's the Christian view of that? What's the Christian view of marriage? What's the Christian view of doing this or that? And what they're saying is, I'm interested in Christianity, but I don't want it to be too narrow. I want to be able to live my life, you know? Can I go to certain kinds of movies? And when you ask that question, you're on the wrong trail. Because the Bible says, first, 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 you have to decide who he is before anything else. Now, over the years, I've had a number of people say, what's the Christian view on homosexuality? What they're saying is, I'm interested in Christianity, but I want to know what your church teaches about homosexuality, or they ask about evolution, or the role of women, or some other culture war issue. And with all due respect, who cares? Because first... You have to ask, is Jesus who he said he is? If he is who he said he is, then he's the authority. Then you can go figure out what he says about those issues. You realize how ridiculous it is to say, I want to know whether I like your view of the issues. Is Jesus Christ the Son of God? Is he the Savior of sinners? Is he the Creator? Is he the judge? You need to work on that first. 
once you settle the questions of authority, then you can ask all those other questions. And put it to you another way. People say, you know, I like to be a Christian, but uh, the, the Bible says you can't marry a non-Christian if you're a Christian, and all sorts of things. I'm serious. I just want to say, are you kidding me? If Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the judge of the earth, and he says, I want Christians to only marry Christians, I mean, a lot of people struggle a great deal with that. So what? It's nothing. If the next 50 years I have to live with that command, that's nothing if I'm going to rule and reign with him forever. If he really is who he said he is, he has a right to ask for that because he's wise. Don't you see that? But could you say, really? No, I want to marry whoever I want. Therefore, even though Jesus is who he said he is, and even though he's the Son of God, and even though he's the judge of all the earth, and even though he's the Savior who died for me, I can't come to him. And I'm like, are you crazy? What's the matter with you? You're not thinking. It's not a lot of lack of faith. It's a lack of sense. If Jesus is who he said he is, then the only rational response is to do what he says, regardless of what he says. If he's the king of the world, the king of the universe, the king of all creation, the only rational response is to follow him. And you follow him by doing what he says. Now, if he's not, then of course none of this makes any sense. But that's what you have to work on. With all due respect... Who cares what Jesus teaches about marriage? Who cares what he teaches about sexuality? Who cares what he teaches about evolution? First, you have to figure out, is he him? Is he him? He says, follow me. In other words, I won't deal with you about anything else until you decide how you're going to deal with me. I'm not going to tell you about anything else. I'm not going to tell you why your life went this way or that way. You decide who's the authority in your life. Is it you or me? That's the call. And whenever I see people who just love talk about theological issues, and I'm about to go to a giant meeting of 1,400 people who love to talk about theological issues, you know, who love to talk about creation and evolution, fascinated with miracles or healing, whatever. No offense, they're all very interesting, and they are important. But they're never the first thing. I mean, if the Holy Spirit is after you, and you're really meeting the real Jesus who says, follow me, you have to come to grips with that. You've got to figure out who Jesus is first before you deal with any other question. You have to decide how you're going to relate to him. And then, after that, you can figure out what he teaches about this and that and what he'll have you do. But you don't say, I'll come to Jesus if I like his agenda. You have to say, if he is the Messiah, if he is the Christ, if he is the Son of God, Savior of sinners, judge of the earth, then I have to get with his agenda. And his agenda should be life for me because he's my creator and he's my redeemer. And either he is your creator and redeemer and his agenda, whatever it is, is life for you, or he's not and you shouldn't have anything to do with him. Have you heard that call? Have you heard him come and come after you and say, follow me? Maybe today's first day. 
Maybe the first time you realize that, gee, Christianity isn't just about being more religious and having a set of ethics. It's coming to grips with who's the Lord of my life, who's the Savior of my life, me or him, all or nothing. So the first thing we learn here is a Christian is called by someone, and that someone is Jesus. Next, the next way you know you're called is because a Christian is called to someone. A Christian is called to someone. They're short blanks. They're short words today. I was tired. <laughs> I mean, look at Matthew. His life is totally changed. It's revolutionized. You know, one day he's filling out the ledger. The next day, you know, he's following Jesus, and, and he decides to have a reception in Jesus' honor. In the middle of this uh, dinner, this disagreement breaks out. Those Jesus and the Pharisees use two words back and forth, very curious, starting at verse 10. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now the reason this is curious is because elsewhere in the New Testament, both Paul and Jesus reject this way of talking about the righteous and sinners. You know, in Romans 3, Paul says, No one is righteous, no, not one. In Luke 18, we read, Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And if Jesus says that and Paul says that, why are they using these terms here? Because this is how Pharisees talk. Jesus has to talk their language. This is how they talk. Let me show you what's going on. Pharisees divide the world into good people and bad people. And Matthew is a classic example of bad people. He's a tax collector. Tax collectors are Jews who collected taxes for the Romans. And they weren't just hated because they were helping the oppressors, because they bribed people and lined their own pockets and they were corrupt. You know, it's classic for people to say, you know, there's little sins and then there's big sins. And there's good people who do little sins. I'm a good person. I do little sins. Of course, nobody's perfect. You know, the air is human, blah, 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 blah. However, there's bad people. They do big sins. And Pharisee religion divides people between the good and the bad and the little sins and the big sins. And what are the big sins? You know, bribery, extortion, corruption, traditionally crime and uh, any sort of sexual ir irregularities go in the big sin category. So we see bad people and good people, and the good people do things that are wrong, but they're little sins. You say, yes, but I'm beyond that now. I'm a tolerant person. I live in northern Virginia. You know, Pharisee religion is way more pervasive than you might realize. I mean, it's not just the way that formal, traditional religion operates. It's the way the heart operates. I read an interesting article in a secular magazine recently, and it was about this sort of big sin, little sin kind of issue. And it talks about back in the 1950s, there was a senator from Wisconsin named Joe McCarthy, and he was going after the communists. And uh, people hated him. 
all over the country. Because he go uh, onto the Senate floor, you know, and you can't get accused of libel and slander when you're at the main pulpit there in the Senate. And he named names. So I think that guy's a communist. You know, that guy would read that in the morning paper and say, whoa, I just found out I'm a communist. Who knew? And so people hated him. And mentions in this article that Joe McCarthy was a known sexual harasser. He was always grabbing and pinching his secretaries. He was always trying to embarrass them. He was always doing that sort of thing, but he was faithful to his wife. He says people tried very hard to bring him down, but nobody thought about bringing up this issue of sexual harassment. Why? Because back then, it was a little sin. If you were faithful to your wife but harassed your secretary, were oppressive to women, that's a little sin. Faithful to your wife, that's what's important. Adultery was a big sin. Sex outside of marriage was a big sin. Sexual harassment was a little sin. Think about that because now it's reversed. Now sexual harassment is a big sin. Sex outside of marriage, not so much. Won't keep you out of elected office anymore. Here's the point. You know, you may think, we may think, any of us, these are big sins and these are little sins, and I only do little sins. I don't do big sins. They're bad people. They're what's wrong with this world. They're what's wrong with this country. I'm okay. I only do little sins. And when we do that, and the reason we do that, the reason we stay out of the big sins and only have little sins, ultimately it's so we can just say, God... Aren't you glad to have me on your team? <laughs> you know, you owe me. I made sacrifices. I said no all over the place. You know, I said no to this and this and this and to her and to him. And I believe in traditional values. I've done all these things since I was a boy. I go to church. I tithe. I fast. I do these things. God owes it to me to save me. He owes it to me to hear my prayers. God owes it to me. I only do little sins. And when we think like that, or sometimes we don't even think like that, it just comes out because it's in us. And without actually coming out and saying it, the faith that you're professing with that kind of an attitude is that you think you're really better than other people. You're, you know, superior. You've sacrificed. You've brought your sacrifices. You, know, you defend yourself by your good works and your sense of being superior and look down your nose at lower class America and the rest of the world and the other side of the county. You know, I live here. And we need to look at our hearts. I mean, the Pharisees are obvious. Pharisees brought their sacrifices, literal sacrifices, animal sacrifices, brought their tithes, brought their offerings, and looked down their nose at everybody. God owes me a good life. I'm better than other people. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, thank you, I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, Matthew. We know what he's like. Pharisee's obvious, but everybody does it. Everybody does it. And then Jesus comes along and says, I got nothing to say to people who live like that. He's using the terminology of religious people. If sinners means people who do bad things... And righteous means people who think they're good. Jesus can, is confronting that. You know, there's a conservative and liberal approach here, and I think we see it 
in the scriptures and all the ways that Jesus deals with people, you know, particularly the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke. I mean, the conservatives say, what's Jesus saying? What's he doing here? Why is he eating with them? Tax collectors and sinners, what are we talking about? And Jesus says, because these are the only people who understand what I'm saying. You have to see your own moral failure or we can't go on. The conservatives don't get that. The liberals don't either. They're like, sinner? Sinner? How primitive. I'm okay. I'm better than most. Of course I err. This is ridiculous. And what Jesus says to all this, I think is fascinating. Verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So I'm going to quote something from the Old Testament. We read as part of our responsive reading this morning. I want you to go and learn what it means. He doesn't expect him to get it right away. Being a Christian takes thinking. He's saying, this is deep. It's going to take you a while to figure out. I want you to study it. I want you to think about it. I want you to meditate on it. I want you to talk to other people about it. I want you to talk to me. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So what's he mean? He's quoting from Hosea 6, which we read earlier, and Isaiah 58. It's a couple places where the prophets come to the people there in the Old Testament and say, you guys are fools. You're bringing your sacrifices to church, your offerings, your rituals, and don't you understand, it's not what God really wants. And that's what Jesus is saying. Well, what does that mean? I think it means a couple of things. First, it means we need to look inside. We need to look inside. I mean, look at the law. Look what it says, Matthew 22, the famous uh, great commandment. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if God really created you, and apparently 95% of Americans believe that, according to the polls, uh, then you owe him everything. You should be showing him tremendous love at all times. He should be number one in your life. Is he? Of course not. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's just the golden rule. Treat your neighbor the way you want to be treated. Meet your neighbor's needs the way you would want your needs uh, to be met. Does anybody do that? Of course not. And Jesus is saying, look away from your sacrifices and look at the mercy. Look at the love God requires. You'll be humbled into the dust. It's just a mini version of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, many weeks ago, Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't kill. I say, don't even resent. That's a paraphrase. What's he mean? Well, he says, here you are, and you're guilty of little sins, a grudge here and there. And there, that guy over there, he's murdered. He says, don't you realize the difference? The entire oak forest at one time was in an acorn, and all it needed to let its power out is the proper environment, sunlight and water and, and so on. And murder is like that. It's in your heart, no matter who you are. And the only difference between you and that killer are all the restraining forces that have kept your acorns on the shelf instead of letting them fall into the mud. If you look at your heart instead of your sacrifices, if you look at what God's required of you, it'll humble you. And then I think, lastly, he says, look away from your sacrifices to the only mercy that will save you. And what's the only mercy that will save you? Me. I've come. 
I'm here eating with tax collectors and sinners. What he's really trying to say is the only way you can get out from all the problems you have is to look away from what you do. Look away from your sacrifices. Don't look and see what you have done. Look at what I have done. I've brought the mercy. Don't look at your sacrifices. Look at mine. That's the way to smash the old wineskins. We're called by someone, Jesus, and we're called to someone, Jesus. And last we learned we called for someone. For someone, verse 14. The disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now, very quickly, Jesus is telling us, the Bible's telling us, there has to be a breaking up of your old foundations. There has to be a revolution in, in the way you think about things. There has to be a smashing, a breaking here. Because Christianity is the new wine. You put new wine into an old wineskin, the old wineskin doesn't have the flexibility. See how this metaphor works? The new wine ferments, begins to swell, it needs space, it's chemically, organically active, it's going to burst the old wineskin. That's always the case with Christianity. And here we have Jesus eating, and they're like, why is he doing that? That's new. Of course, eating is so much means so much more then than it does now. You know, back then to eat with someone is to have close, real, real close fellowship with them. It's to say we have a personal relationship. And here Jesus is eating with sinners. In fact, he says, I only eat with sinners. And I was thinking, how much are we like Jesus? How do we deal with moral failures? When people come and tell you about something they've done or how they failed or they let themselves down or they let God down or they let the family down, how do we treat them? Are we impatient? Are we indignant? Indignant? Do you say, why can't you get it together? Do they sense that you really can't understand how they could have done this? And even if you're not so dumb to say, you did what? I mean, how can anybody do that? You know, when that's our response, we have to realize we're righteous in the sense that Jesus is talking about. And he didn't come to call the righteous. If you don't believe that murder and all these awful things are in acorn form in your heart, then you just don't believe you're a sinner like everybody else. As a result, you can't be sympathetic. You can't give others hope. People won't come tell you their problems. They don't feel embraced by you. You know, you can't come to him and say, Jesus loves people like you. He runs to people like you. He runs to the helpless. He runs to the repentant. He can't resist people who come to him and open their hearts. Can we say that? Does people get that impression from us, or do they think that we're kind of cold, you know, and we don't know how to handle people who do that sort of thing? How we handle other people's failures will tell us a lot about whether we're a Pharisee or not. How much of a Pharisee there still is in my life. In fact, how do you deal with your own failures? 
when you let yourself down, when you fail and you're devastated and you can't face God and you can't face others and you can't face yourself in the mirror because you failed. It's a sign that your old self-righteous wineskin hasn't been smashed. When you let yourself down, when you let others down, you know, when you screw up, do you beat yourself up? Do you knock yourself around? I do that. I'll be like, I can't believe I did that. I was so stupid. I'll do it a lot. Like, not since yesterday. But you know what it shows? It shows that deep down, I don't really believe Jesus is my Savior. I'm my Savior. If you do that, you believe that you're your own Savior. And then you find out that your Savior died. And there's nothing more despairing. Your Savior is in ruins. But if Jesus is your Savior and you've transferred all your trust to him, and then you find out Jesus eats with sinners, people who forget things, people who do stupid things, people who forget and fail and just can't believe it. And it doesn't matter how good or bad you are, how big a sinner or a little sinner. We're all big sinners, but we like to think we're little sinners. You know, the apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, he was very accomplished. He had you know, big checklist, all the credentials. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ and count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul's saying, I used to look at my own righteousness. Top-notch Pharisee here. I used to look to everything that I did, all of my sacrifices. thought God owes me a good life. Now I realize my only hope is to be found in his righteousness. It says to be found in him. Jesus eating with sinners is something that should just knock you flat if you really understand it. It means no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, the distinction that Jesus recognizes is not between the good and the bad. The distinction that Jesus recognizes is between the proud and the humble. That's the only one that counts. Are you willing to say, Jesus, I'm not worthy? You don't owe me a good life. You don't. You owe me nothing but wrath. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the minute that happens, he rushes in to eat with you. But if you say, a lot of sacrifices, only little sins, you owe me a good life. The minute that happens, he's saying, I haven't come for you. You have to understand, that's the gospel. He's come for the sinners. He hasn't come to call the righteous. That's real Christianity. That's the gospel. It's incredibly simple, and it's incredibly profound. He says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Which one are you? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a minute to do that, and I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've given us a king, your son, our savior.
Thank you for giving us a picture of what it means to be a Christian. There's a number of us right now, I would think, who probably don't even realize we're being called because our lives seem to be in tatters. But it could be you're trying to teach us your strength is made perfect in weakness. could be you're trying to get us to see our weakness, our need for you. So, Father, I pray. People here who realize they're being sought would answer your call. Father, some of us are seeking very hard and we can't seem to find you, but Lord, you will come to us if we say, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Show me yourself. And most of all, help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.